Today we're starting a new series. It's going to be a two-week series, and it's going to be dealing with the topic of forgiveness. The question is, is how forgiveness works. That is what we're dealing with. It's going to be a two-week series uh, this week and next week dealing with forgiveness. Do you ever come across a concept or an invention or a new idea and you start to wonder, well, how does that work? How can that work? What takes place for that thing to work? Sometimes we hear of uh, some kind of concept that our mind just starts to go, okay, now I understand that, but now how does it work? And so it could be like the concept fly an airplane. How does a big metal bird go off of a tarmac and then just, it starts to lift up and it just seems like it goes straight up in the air and it gets thousands of uh, feet up in the air. How does that happen? Or maybe you wonder how a key can open and unlock a lock. How does a key mechanism get into the little hole? You twist it and it opens up whatever you're trying to open. Or maybe if you have a cell phone. A lot of us are new to, kind of new to cell phones or in the smartphones. How in the world does these smartphones work? How does data get received and how does all these things work? And sometimes when we try to figure it out, we can rack our brains trying to figure it out. But naturally, I believe that a lot of people are curious. A lot of people are curious about things, and we want to learn about things. We want to see how something works. We want to understand it for ourselves. We want to touch it so that we can experience it. And for me, I'm a curious person concerning a lot of things, but one thing for sure that has confused me was the game of golf. And I don't know if you like golf. Me, I didn't grow up liking the game of golf. Golf was actually a despised game in my household. Growing up, my family was more of a baseball and a football type family, so golf was one of those boring sports. We would get mad if golf made it on ESPN top 10 plays. We would get upset, like who would waste their time? Uh, We didn't know anything to do with golf. We didn't have a golf club in our house. And in fact, if we found a golf ball in our house, we would take a baseball bat and we would try to hit it with our bats. There was one time me and my brother actually got up on a roof late at night. It was about midnight, and we had a bucket of golf balls with our baseball bat, and we just started throwing up the golf balls and hitting them off our roof to see how far we can hit them. Not worrying about the damage that we're going to make, not worrying about how much trouble we're going to get into, not worrying about uh, whose property we're going to damage, not worrying about anything. And then the last ball we threw up, we, we threw it up and hit it, and it went sky high. This ball went so high, and it's midnight, we lost sight of it. We don't know if it's going to come crashing down on our heads. So me and my brother were just kind of waiting for like 10 seconds. And then you just hear this big smack, and our neighbor's car got hit. And it was about an inch away from their window. And we were like, we're in trouble. We jumped off the roof, but the smack uh, woke up our neighbor in just enough time for them to peek out their window and see two hoodlums jumping off the roof. And we got caught. We were busted. So that's how we used golf and golf balls in our house. But when I became a believer, which was about 11 years ago, uh, I came into the church and there was a lot of people who were involved with the game of golf. And by nature, I just found myself on the golf course. Uh, But not knowing anything about the sport, of course, not knowing anything what's going on. And I came from a a background of a lot of bad stuff. I mean, you hear me uh, jumping on a roof and hitting golf balls off. I did a lot of bad stuff in my life. And when I came into the church, I learned about this, this topic of forgiveness, that I've been forgiven, 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 and I've been forgiven of all the bad that I've ever done in my life. It almost sounded too good to be true. And so here I am understanding that I've been forgiven of my sins. Well, as I'm on the golf course learning the game of golf, here I am golfing, and I don't have a set of golf clubs. I don't know the rules to the sport. I didn't know you can't talk when people are taking a swing. I didn't know how to keep my ball out of the water. I didn't know anything about golf. And my first set of golf clubs, when they were handed to me, the gentleman said, 
you're going to like these golf clubs because they have a lot of forgiveness. And I'm like, did Jesus die on the cross for these golf clubs too? Like, how does this work? How does this work? And so I started to look into it. I started to dig into it, trying to figure out, okay, what's this concept? How do golf clubs forgive like Jesus forgives, right? And so I start looking online and I start finding out, well, a golf club manufacturer, they're going to manufacture the club so, in such a way where it will be a benefit to the golfer. So if you're a bad golfer or a new time golfer like myself, a club that you want is a forgiving club, a club that has a flimsy shaft, a club that has a different uh, shape of the face of the club so when you hit the ball, it's going to make good contact. Or maybe a different kind of weight shift in the club. All this will go into effect for uh, forgiving the bad golfer on their swing. In fact, what they say is it's going to help you uh, not have those poor contacts with the ball. It's going to help you be able to drive the ball easier and safer, and you're going to like the game a little bit more. So this is what the concept was for me on how forgiveness with the golf clubs work. Well, I, I want to talk about how does forgiveness work with us? How does forgiveness work dealing in our faith? And this morning, uh, this, this series that we're starting, it comes from a verse in the Lord's Prayer. And one of the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer that he teaches us on how to pray, he says this very remarkable and startling fact about our forgiveness with God and our forgiveness with others. We actually said it today in our Lord's Prayer, but this is what uh, Jesus says in his prayer, and it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So in this one verse, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we have ourselves two messages. And the question I kind of want to open this series up with is how does forgiveness work between us and God? And then next week I want to talk about how does forgiveness work with us towards others. Now, I will be honest with you and upfront with you. This is a hard issue to deal with in this life. It's a hard issue not just with us and God. It costed him his son. His son died on the cross. That's not easy. And then when we have to forgive others in the same capacity that God is telling us to forgive, it's also hard. So the word that Jesus uses here in this verse is debt and debtors. And we know one thing about debt. And uh, really, honestly, you can't really make it anywhere in this life without going into some form of debt. Yes, you can, but it's really, really hard. But likely you're going to take out a home loan. Likely you're going to take out a car loan or a school loan. And that would automatically put you in debt. And one thing about debt is that you must pay that debt in order for that debt to be taken away. The problem with our faith, though, is that there's no amount of money that you or I can pay to take away our debt that we have with God. Our debt towards God is the sins that we commit in this life. And in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to uh, the fall of mankind. And with that fall of mankind, we're introduced to a curse of mankind that we're all born into sin. But it doesn't stop there because as early as Genesis 3.15, we're promised a redemption plan, a, a debt payment for our sins. And because you and I are incapable of paying off the debt that we have with God, there's only one solution and God fixed that solution, and it's with Jesus Christ, his son. Why is Jesus the only solution? Well, it's for many reasons. One, he loved the world so much he did not want us to perish. Two, he um, had to fulfill prophecy, God dying in our place to redeem us. In our sinful nature, we weren't good enough. Honestly, we deserve to die that punishable death. But because of our sins, we deserve the death. Jesus, who lived a perfect life, he was not born into sin. He's our only hope to be considered in the right 
eyes of God. So Jesus fulfilled promises from God, and he was punished with the blood that he shed for us to cover the iniquity of us all. So how does this work? Well, Hebrews chapter 9, as we read in our opening scripture verse this morning, Hebrews 9.22 says it very clearly. Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Jesus, he was the perfect lamb of sacrifice. He had to have blood shed in order for sins to be forgiven. This morning, what I want to do is I don't want to look at the story of the cross, which we'll get to that, Jesus being crucified. That's the main point of us receiving forgiveness from God. But what I want to do is I want to look at an Old Testament story that I'm sure many of you are here familiar with. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And yes, a lot of people look at David and Bathsheba as this lustful uh, murderer and adulterer. Like, how could this man do such wrong? But what I want to do is I want to look at David and how he had to get right with God. You see, David sinned against the Lord, and he knew it, and he had to get forgiveness between him and God in a way that a lot of us also have to get our sins right with us and God to receive forgiveness. So in 2 Samuel chapter 11, this is where we're going to be at, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we're going to be looking at those two. I'm going to kind of paraphrase uh, these two passages, but if you have your Bibles, please join me in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, What we have going on in these two chapters is we have a war going on, and all the other kings are out at war, but we have King David, the king of Israel, he's at home in Jerusalem. And as he's home, he's literally, uh, he decides one night, let me just go out onto my palace, let me get on my rooftop of my palace, kind of like I was when I was going on the roof to hit golf balls. And let me just be up to no good, right? And so David is out there, he's kind of like looking around, and he just stumbles upon this woman who's taking a shower. And he's like, man, that woman's beautiful. Man, I got to have her. Man, I want her. And so he sends people over to get her. And David realizes that uh, her name's Bathsheba. She's married to one of his army men, uh, Uriah. And David, that didn't stop him. He decided to still sleep with her. And she got pregnant. Now, why this became an issue is because back then, they didn't have any DNA tests. They didn't have Ancestry.com. They didn't have maternity tests. They didn't have Murray or Jerry Springer saying, you are not the father. They didn't have any of that. And so the issue was, David's in trouble. He's like, you know, she just finished her purifying herself. Her husband's away at war. There's no way that her husband could have gotten her pregnant. So now I'm the only one who's guilty right now. You know what? I got a plan. And David feels out this plan. He's like, I'm going to have Uriah come home from a war. I'm going to have him come home. And, and, and so Uriah comes home. This is David's plan A. Uriah comes home, and he's just kind of like shooting the breeze with them. He's like, hey, man, how's the war going? How, how are the armies? Is there anything I could do for you? You know, just casually shooting the breeze with them. And then David says this in verse 8. He tells Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift for the king was sent after him. You see, David's plan A was to have Uriah feel as if he can go home, be with his wife, and hopefully sleep with her. Because if he sleeps with her, and then he finds out that she's pregnant, he's going to know that's, that's obviously not King David's kid. It has to be Uriah's. Well, Uriah's like, you know, I don't feel right about going to uh, bed with my wife and eating fine foods and all this great stuff. When I have brothers in Christ who are out there in the war, I just can't do it. And so Uriah doesn't go home that night. So plan A for David completely fails. So plan B for David's like, you know what, we just got to get Uriah drunk. 
If I get him drunk, then sure enough, he's going to go want to be with his wife. And so David gets him drunk, and, and later he finds out that Uriah still did not go home, which plan A fails, plan B fails, and now David is at plan C. And plan C is kind of really messed up. If you ever really looked at the context of uh, the scripture, you see that David sends Uriah back home with a letter. And I'm sure Uriah did not open this letter, but this letter basically told the sergeant to put Uriah on the front lines of war. So when the battle of fighting gets so fierce, withdraw and leave Uriah up there to die. And sure enough, this is exactly what happens. This is David's plan C. Take out Uriah so he can have Bathsheba as his own. And in verse 26 and 27, this is what we have. This is David's plan C. When Uriah's wife, when Bathsheba, heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So far we have in the story that we covered a lot, we have a lot going on. We have a lot. And, and one thing I really want you to see is that David does something that you and I are guilty of as well. When we sin, the initial thing, because, you know, we're guilty, we're shameful, we're humiliated, we're embarrassed of it, we kind of start to conceal it. We kind of cover it up so that people can't find us out, right? And that's what David's trying to do. He's trying to cover up his shortcoming. He's trying to cover it up so that he doesn't get caught. He also has no remorse over his sin. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at more effects of unforgiveness of sin. But before we get there, David has a special encounter with a prophet named Nathan. And Nathan comes to David. And Nathan tells him a story in chapter 12. And we found this in the first four verses of 12. He says, The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. So now David... What's happening right here is David is being encountered with a prophet from Nathan, a prophet Nathan, who is coming from God. David does not know that Nathan is going to rebuke him. David has no idea. He probably just thinks this is a nice visit. And Nathan starts telling him this story. And it's a parallel story to exactly what David had just done. You see, what David didn't understand was that David was the rich man, the poor man was Uriah, and the ewe lamb was Bathsheba. And so here... David is like hearing this story and check out his response from Nathan as he uh, says it to Nathan. In verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four, over, four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. What David sounds like right now is hypocritical. He sounds double standard big time. And David has no idea that Nathan is talking about him. And in the next five verses from 7 to 12, Nathan is just like saying, Hello, David, this is you. You are the one who actually, you are the rich man. You're the one who took from a poor man. This is you. You killed the man and took his wife as your own. This is you. And then David confesses in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
So a lot's going on in these two chapters. The first thing I kind of want to talk about this morning is the effects of unconfessed sin. The effects of unconfessed sin. David put himself in some deep waters here, and he's really feeling the repercussions of his sin. But the truth about our sin, especially when we haven't asked Christ to forgive us of our sin, or if we've never received Christ as our Savior, the truth about our sin is it deserves one thing, and it's a death penalty. We deserve eternal separation from God. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul actually writes, For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. So if you were to go to work, you would get a wage for that work. So for starters, the effect of our sin is separation between us and God. Meaning damnation, meaning hell, meaning for all eternity facing anguish and pain and suffering as a result, as a wager for our sin. There's many more effects that sin have on us, but some effects that sin has on us is the guilt. We feel guilty about our sin. When we do something wrong, we feel bad. We feel shameful of our sin. We don't want people to know our sin because we're so humiliated or embarrassed by it. One thing that sin can also do is it can make us feel distant from God. Sin, when we are concealing sin, unconfessed sin, it makes us feel distant from God. Not just distant with God, but we also can start feeling distant from other people, in fact, other godly people. We also start staying away from godly events like church. We'll skip out on church because we know if we go there, we're going we're gonna to feel guilty of our sin. We're going to feel convicted. Sin can also make us angry towards many things, big or small. People can feel like they're walking on eggshells around us. Sin can make us bitter and depressed towards life. Sin can cause us to fear of being caught, and it can also fear us or have us fear eternal separation with God. Unconfessed sin literally means it can lower your self-esteem. It can kill you physically. And if not dealt with, we typically find ourselves in that cycle of repeating that same old sin. When we, don't, when we don't confess our sin, we find ourselves getting worse and deeper in our sin. And when this happens, we become numb to sin. And we lose the desire to even change or even to try to put Christ in our life. And quite honestly, as I'm exposing these effects of, of unconfessed sin, it sounds miserable. It sounds heavy. It sounds like exhausting to know that if I'm confess, uh, concealing unconfessed sin, it's going to waste me away physically. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't want to wear that weight. And David kind of exposes that misery as he writes in Psalms 32, verses 3 and 4. He kind of talks about exactly what I'm saying right here. In verse 3 he says, When I kept silent, when I concealed my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Looking at David's description here, I mean, if you just... Look at that, those verses. You see exactly what I'm talking about here. We learn that sin can be a killer. And he kept silent about his sin, hoping that it will eventually just go away. But David, uh, his strength began to fail him. His, he began to be fatigued and exhausted. He felt physically aged. His sorrow led him to groaning, not to mention he was groaning all day long. Doesn't sin ever do that to you? you, you, you let's say you, you fall short of the glory of God early in the morning. You don't confess it. And it's just like a dark cloud that just hovers over you all day long. In verse 4, David points out that the Lord's hand was heavy 
on him. And here, I believe he's talking about the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know when you sin, and the Holy Spirit knows you sin, the Holy Spirit's in your heart, and you know that you sinned, and you're just like, man, the Holy Spirit's punching me in the arm. Dude, you got to confess. you got to tell the Lord what you did. It's this hand that's heavy on you. Just confess it to Jesus. And David, lastly, he confesses that he was exhausted as if he was in the heat in the summer. And now us Floridians, we know exactly what this is like because we have heat in the winter. We have heat all year long. And we know when we go outside, we get fatigued. We start sweating. We start wanting AC. We want water. We start to waste away. We just want fresh air. You see, the effects of sin are heavy and honestly not even worth for us to have them in our life. The unconfessed sin, we have to confess it. So the effects of unconfessed sin is that. But how does this whole forgiveness thing work? Which brings us to our second point. The first step towards forgiveness is confession. The first steps towards forgiveness is confession. The truth is that we're all in desperate need for God's forgiveness. Every single one of us is in desperate need for God's forgiveness. Without the forgiveness of God, you and I are literally a lost cause. If Jesus never died on the cross for our sins, we would be in a lot of trouble. We would not have a debt forgiveness for us yet. The only way to receive that forgiveness, because it is here, is offered through confessing it to God. And the unique thing about confessing it to God is, he already knows you did it. He already knows what you did. He actually knows your thoughts before you even think it. He knows what you're about to say before he even leaves your mouth. You see, God is God. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. He knows the depths of our hearts. Now, I'm not saying that your, your, your desperation and your fear of hell should drive you to confessing your sin. But what I am saying is that the God has redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. And in order to receive that redemption, in order to receive that debt forgiveness... We have to go with our sin to God. We must confess our sins. And with confessing our sins, there's a beautiful promise. And that promise comes from 1 John 1, 9. As John writes this, he says, If we confess our sin, in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the beautiful promise of confession. Is that you will be purified from everything that you've ever done wrong. You will be right in the eyes of God. And that promise here, it's only if we confess our sins to Jesus. He is faithful, he is just, and he is willing to purify us from all unrighteousness. Now this verse right here, I mean, you want to engrave this verse into your heart. You want to engrave this verse into your soul. You want to hold tight to this verse. Because this verse has such a beautiful promise that you will be forgiven of anything that you've done. A beautiful thing happens when we confess our sin. In Proverbs 28, 13, the, the proverb says this, he who conceals his sin does not prosper. That's David right there. David is exactly right there. He who conceals his sin does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them, they find mercy. So it's foolish to conceal sin. Folks like that do not Prosper, And we serve a God who willingly died on the cross on our behalf so that we can have freedom with him. And that's, that's God's instant forgiveness. God is ready to forgive you at the drop of a hat, at the drop of anything. God has instant forgiveness for you. Just look at the story of the prodigal son. 
The problem with sin, though, is it imprisons us. Sin can make us captive in bondage to our sin, and, and, and it pulls us away from even being used for God's glory. Now, I don't know about you, but there's some things that, when I was a young believer, there's some things that I had to confess to Jesus. And when I confessed it to Jesus, the sins that helped me in bondage, helped me in a prison cell, when I confessed it, I literally felt as if chains were popping off of my wrists. When you confess your sins to Jesus, he's going to purify you from all unrighteousness. And we walk in that freedom that Jesus offers. So we have to understand one thing as we go into our last point. Forgiveness of sins does not revoke consequences. So we we know the effects of unconfessed sins. We know the first step towards forgiveness is confession. But now this last point is forgiveness does not revoke consequences. It would be nice... It would be nice if we did some pretty bad stuff in this world and didn't have to worry about the, the, the effects, the after effect, right? The aftermath of our destruction. You see, the sinful things that we commit, that brings a lot of hurt. It brings a lot of harm. It brings a lot of destruction. It brings a lot of pain, especially to the ones that we love the most. And our sin for sure will upset others and cause division and conflict with other people in our life. Going back to Nathan and David right now. Nathan told David one startling thing in verse uh, 13 and 14. We've already read the first half. But Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. David, your sins are forgiven. You are not going to die for your sin in verse 14. But David, but because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. So there is a consequence for our sin. There is a consequence for David's sin. And you might think this is kind of brutal for God to take the life of a child. I honestly thought it was kind of brutal as well. I thought it was pretty harsh. But then as I began to dig deeper and try to figure out what's going on here, I discovered that King David had been set apart to be the king of Israel. He had, he had a, a, an anointing over his life. What David did with the, the adultery and the murder, he kind of jeopardized the will and the plan for God over his life. God was using him to rebuild the kingdom here on earth. David also had promises spoken over his life. The child did not. And if God didn't take the child, perhaps God's name would have been dishonored among the Israel pagan neighbors. God could have been ridiculed for being a God who kind of rewards adultery and murder. David and Bathsheba are for sure the ones who should have died, not the child. But honestly... I would say that the grief, the pain, the suffering, the anguish, the despair that comes from experiencing the death of one of your own children, I think David experienced God's wrath by having to walk through that. But we, when we commit sin, we have to be ready to handle the consequences of our sin. Now, I do want to preface something that... Your sins in heaven will not have any consequence. Jesus died for that. But the consequences here on earth, they're still going to be there. Just because Jesus is ready to forgive you doesn't remove the effects of the damage. Let's say you're going through a hard time financially. Times are hard. You have a mortgage payment coming up. You have uh, car payments coming up. You have bills to pay. You have groceries. You have mouths to feed. You don't have money. Let's just say you just get this idea, what if I just go rob the bank just one time? You know, God's going to forgive me, and he for sure will. He will forgive you for that. But when you get caught, your consequences, you are still going to jail. It's just the way it is. 
Or let's say if, you know, you're at work and you have a disagreement with the boss and the boss is coming against you and you start having division with the boss and you start arguing with the boss and then soon you know it, you're starting to spread rumors about the boss, gossiping about the boss, trying to get people up against the boss. God will for sure forgive you, but you still might get fired. You see, there's consequences for our sins. Yes, we will be forgiven for our sins, but the better way of life is to not live in our sins with the expectation of them to be forgiven, but to know that we have to seek Christ and his righteousness. Understand that you and I have been bought with a price, and that price is the blood of Jesus. So if we have sin in our life, the best thing that we can do is run to the Father. Confess our sins to him so that we may be forgiven. And then truly repent and turn from the wicked ways that we once lived. Make adjustments in your life. Put on the new self and seek Christ. And I believe that's what David did because he didn't continue to live in his failure. If you continue reading in 2 Samuel 12, David's found after the child passes away, he's found worshiping God. David accepted the consequence of his, of his sin and he continued to pursue God. David even wrote about uh, forgiveness in one of the, uh, the Psalms uh, right here in Psalms 32 as we looked at before earlier. But we're going to look at what it said before and a little bit after in Psalms 32 verse 1 and 2 and verse 5. This is what David records in his psalm. Blessed is the one whose transgressions, whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And I love this part. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is how forgiveness works. Jesus died so that you and I can live. His blood alone covers us from any punishment. Our debt to God has been paid in full and the only thanks goes to Jesus. And again, this is prophecy being fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5, says it very clearly about the promised uh, fulfillment of prophecy right here through the life of Jesus. Surely he, surely Jesus, Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely Jesus took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered Jesus punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Christ. And by his wounds, we are healed. So in closing, I, I don't know where you specifically are at today in your walk with Jesus. Perhaps you've never received Christ as your Savior. Perhaps you've never asked God to forgive you for any of your sins. I want to say, and I want to encourage you to allow today be the day that you just receive God's forgiveness. It's a gift. It's a beautiful gift. And it's a gift that can wash your sin as white as snow. Perhaps there's someone in here today who's concealing sin. I want to encourage you. It starts with confession. And you don't have to live under that guilt. You don't have to live under that remorse. You don't have to live under that embarrassment and shame. Don't hold back. God already knows you've done it. Just confess it. Perhaps you're feeling the weight of your sin and you just want relief. Give that all to Jesus. He is faithful. He is just. And he's willing to forgive you. I like to think of this idea of forgiveness in terms with God, in terms of my Wi-Fi connection. A lot of us have Wi-Fi in our house. There's Wi-Fi in this church. But when I'm really close to the Wi-Fi modem, 
I don't have to worry about anything. The signal will have full bars. My connection speeds will be out this roof. Uh, I don't have to worry about my Netflix show or my Hulu show from buffering. I don't have to worry about that circle going round and round and round because I'm close to the modem. But when I'm not close to the modem, it's the opposite. If I'm on a FaceTime call, it'll be quick to let me know that you have a poor connection. Uh, I'll be lucky if Facebook or Instagram even loads up. Good luck on sending or receiving any kind of text message as well. This is similar with God. When we're close to him, sins confessed and forgiven and all, we feel our faith is oh so strong. We feel like our prayer life is so vibrant. We see God at work in our life. We even feel God's presence wherever we are because we're close to the Father. But when we're not close to God, when we have unconfessed sin, there's a distance. We feel distant from him. We feel almost as if God's ear is turned away from us and he's not hearing our prayers. Sometimes we even feel guilty to say that Jesus, I don't even think he's in my heart anymore. We feel isolated. We feel messy. Sometimes we need to reboot our modem server so that our Wi-Fi connection can be restored. And sometimes in our faith, we need to reboot our faith so that our relationship with Jesus is restored. This is only done through the forgiveness of Jesus by the confessing our sins to him in confession. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, knowing that you are God, knowing that we are not, knowing that we have fallen short of the glory of you time and time again. And Lord, I pray for our people, Lord, as we heard a message here on forgiveness dealing with us and you, Lord, I pray that you would lead us to receive that gift of forgiveness. Father, I pray that you will be with us this morning, be with us today, be with us this week. Father, if there's anybody in here who has not known the goodness of how sweet your forgiveness is, on how our sins could be washed away and forgiven, casted as far as the east is from the west and remembered no more, I pray, Lord, that you encourage them to come to the cross where you died at Calvary so that they can be forgiven. Father, if there's anybody in here who's concealing sin, I pray, Lord, that they would take that bold step to you, Jesus, to confess it to you, to get right with you, Lord. As your hand was heavy on David, Lord, I pray for your hand to be heavy on the one who's concealing sin. Father, we need your forgiveness. We are a lost cause without it. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. And we all said, amen.